Hello and welcome to Fat-Free Film. This episode is brought to you by Matthews Studio Equipment in Burbank. If you go to our website, you can see a demonstration of their dolly and also their blue and green screens. And we thank Matthews Studio Equipment for bringing us this episode in which we interview casting director Heidi Levitt. If you want to go to the Matthews website, it's at www.msegrip.com. Hello and welcome to Fat Free Film. I'm Joel Marshall. And I'm Kamala Lopez Dawson, and we're here with noted casting director Heidi Levitt. Hi, Heidi. Hi. Hi. Heidi Levitt has a really interesting resume. She works with a lot of very, I guess you would call them auteur filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Um, filmmakers with a singular vision, generally um, very literary, very intelligent filmmakers, such as Oliver Stone, Neil LeBute, um, various, a lot of people from Europe. So tell us a little bit about how, um, how filmmakers find you and what material you respond to. Well, first of all, I think it also starts with where you started as an assistant because everybody builds up a resume in the business. And I think as a casting director, I started as an assistant for Oliver Stone with Risa Brayman and Billy Hopkins who were casting his movies. At the time, it was the um, late 80s in New York. There was a lot of filmmaking going on in New York at the time. That's when he did Wall Street. And before that, you had filmmakers like Susan Settleman and Jim Jarmusch and the Coen Brothers' first movie. So there was a lot of great energy going on. And that's what attracted me back to the film business as well. And I got lucky enough to work with Risa and Billy at that time. And they started developing a big a big professional life as casting directors because they had been theater directors. So when I worked with Oliver... Um, as one would imagine, it was very intense and it was an amazing experience and it was filled with, filled with highs and lows and I think that it inspired me partly also to learn more about filmmaking and go back to film school. And actually at that time around Wall Street, just before that I had worked with Alan Parker. Um, Alan Parker, Adrian Lyon and Oliver Stone were clients of recent Billy's at that time and I ended up on Angel Heart, which was a movie that starred Mickey Rourke, Lisa Bonet, uh, Robert De Niro. I ended up casting every single supporting role and extra in the movie. And it was a real filmmaking experience because I ended up going to Louisiana. And Alan Parker's films, the, the casting is really amazing in that you will notice he always he pays so much attention to his main and his extras and his supporting players and in that movie there was several um, roles that called for music musicians and so it became my my opportunity to go and find these two roles because as I said Reese and Billy were very busy at that time they had several clients that were going on and Alan was a very demanding director to work with so I started off for him looking for um, the two jazz players. Well, one of them was Brownie McGee, ultimately got the part. But at that time, I had this amazing experience to meet everybody. I mean, really, B.B. King, Johnny Lee Hooker. I went to Chicago, San Francisco. I went all over. And this is something that, as a casting director, is a unique experience that wouldn't happen in today's world. But literally, I was 21, have camera, will travel, and I immersed myself into jazz and blues and I wasn't even an aficionado at all but it was a great but I'm a great researcher and I loved it and I got in touch with everybody and got to meet these legends and Brownie who used to be the partner with Sonny Terry and he was very well known Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee were a duo for a long time and Brownie ended up playing this role and then I needed to create a band and then I got to even meet even more musicians and I had this amazing band that I put together for the movie so that really piqued my interest and I think Alan was very respectful and and he even you know would send me out to look for you know this Cajun there was a scene where they go crawfishing and I you know I go with my camera and in those days it was a bigger video camera and going into a boat and go crawfishing with these guys and and I brought back all my footage and then lo and behold he starts copying that you know but I was again excited to the experience so I was like okay and that went on and on. And then with Oliver during Wall Street, we also did a lot of research. But it was easier research because, you know, we were in New York City. We went to the street. We met real brokers. We hung out at the stock exchange. 
But all those kinds of things is sort of, I think, how I got started somewhat and got into it was through Reese and Billy and then I think being a really detailed and avid learner and researcher. And so one thing led to another, and then it brought me to California because I realized I'd never studied filmmaking. So I went to the AFI. And, and that's, how was that experience? Um, it was it was really it was really interesting in the sense that I think it's a film school that's a conservatory, and you're with people who have mostly worked in the business already a little bit. I had probably more of a Hollywood resume than anybody else because it just so happened that I worked with all these filmmakers. Like I worked on Fatal Attraction where I was responsible for finding the little girl. And again, that was like a big search at those times when you used to have to look for kids. It wasn't like it is today. There weren't a million kids in movies. At that time that we cast Fatal Attraction was around the time that we had cast Macaulay Culkin in a play that I did at EST in New York that Billy Hopkins, who was my boss, he directed, and I was the assistant director, and that led to Mac being cast in Uncle Buck and then Home Alone, and this little girl, Ellen Hamilton Latson, that we cast in Fatal Attraction was a big search, too. So when I got to AFI, they give out everybody's resumes. It looked like I had already been there because I had worked with the first two guest speakers were Alan Parker and, and Adrian Lyon. But I got to you know, write, and I got to collaborate, and I got to learn what it was to make a little movie and to fail and to be, you know, completely consumed by what I was doing. And I did do a movie that I produced um, there as a short that ultimately, 10 years later, I made as a feature film. What movie is that? It's called Delivering Milo. And I ended up as a producer on that movie, and I had written the original story. And it is my Hollywood thorn in my heart because... It was this amazing story for me that I put so much of my time and passion into, and ultimately I found somebody to finance it, and he said he had $10 million, which then was a lot. Today would be an unbelievable sum for an independent movie, and I sold out, kind of. I lost a lot of control of the movie. It didn't end up going in the direction in the script. They changed, and... I got to make the movie. It starred Albert Finney, Bridget Fonda, and Campbell Scott, and Anton Yelchin, who's now grown up, about 17 or 18 now. But um, it wasn't it wasn't the movie I wanted to make. So, again, I was lucky to get the movie made, but I had to step aside at certain points. And ironically now, I there were several producers involved who don't speak to each other. I still am sort of speaking to everybody. But it was a disappointment for me because... It was the film. It was not the film I wanted it to be at all. When you were at AFI, which is the American Film Institute, um, are there different programs that you're in? And what program were you in? I was in a producing program. So there's a directing, cinematography, production design, and I was a producer. I'd never directed anything. I think in retrospect, I might have wanted to try the directing program, but you really had to submit something with some material and the producing suited me well because it was what I'd already done and and it gave me an opportunity to come up with stories and write and even though Milo didn't turn out the way I wanted it to be you know we all know in this business I got a movie made it's showing on Showtime and it's not my vision but that's everybody's story somewhere down the line as a filmmaker in this business. Well, and also just having a produced movie puts you in a very much smaller category than having someone who had a script optioned or having someone that, you know, even sold a script because it can be in development till the end of time and never get made. So to a degree, I think a lot of people always say, get your first movie made, even if you do have to make some sort of compromise, because then you can make your second film. Yeah, I'm facing that now a lot because I realize that that, you know that opportunity you know gave me a lot and it you know it was it was tremendous even though I struggled for years to get it made I did get it made and it didn't come out the way I wanted it to and it's I think it's a really and as a casting director I get offered all the time you know oh you can produce my movie I don't want to be a producer as a casting director I mean I'm happy if I bring enough to the party I think a lot of casting directors today we become producers because cast is integral to getting any movie financed today and so producers have to be able to pick up the phone and get actors attached and it's easier for casting directors often because we're in constant dialogue with the agents but I don't like to be a producer casting director where I'm just taking the credit because I've packaged the movie I I mean I try to call myself now the packager sometimes because that is part of the deal but when I produce the movies that I produce it's really because I care about first and foremost the writing and and the story 
and then I love the idea of being a producer. You know, I, I've always, you know, admired people who could bring all these different artistic elements together. And that's sort of what my strength has been and what I like to do. But it's, um, it is, it's, it's very challenging. Do you think that the business, I mean, you speak of talent being integral to financing. Was it always that way? I think sometimes it was more director-driven, so that a director might say that they want to make this movie and they didn't need to, you know, have five stars and the director. And in the old studio days, they would sign on directors and sign on actors, and they believed in the in the script and the story, and that's the movie they wanted to make. Today, everybody's hedging their bets, so they need to have everything, the entire package put together before they'll say yes or no. Well, our audience are, are a lot of independent filmmakers, young independent guys that are trying to make their first picture, maybe their second picture, and I think we often fall in, I mean, we've talked about this, just you and I, it, it's very difficult. It's a chicken or egg situation. How do you get your material past the agent or to the agent and to the talent without having the financing? If that, and then you know you you have enough faith in your material that it's going to elicit a strong positive response from the talent, which will then bring you the financing. Do you have any advice for filmmakers on how to proceed with this strange puzzle? I think you have to have the best piece of material possible. And I think you try every which way you can to get into the talent. I think that a great piece of material with, you know, a director with a vision attached to it is is your best calling card. Because at the end of the day, everybody's going to read the material. It doesn't matter who's in it. You have to have a great movie behind it. So it's hard, and there's no easy answer to any of it. So I would just say having your you know, believing that you have your script really ready because you really only have one shot to go out there with it. And it really easily becomes old if you're resubmitting the same thing. So I think as an independent filmmaker, you try and gather together as much as you can to strengthen your pitch. You know, if you can attach an executive producer that's a friend of yours, that at least will give it some credibility. Often as a casting director, sometimes I feel like, I'm out there pitching something, and I have more credits than anybody else on the project. Well, that's tough, you know? I mean, people, yes, will take the call. So, therefore, I have to really believe in it. But anybody, if you're an independent filmmaker, you want to put your package together to give it the best possible spin. And if, you know, you had a relationship with a well-known director who maybe wants to champion you and they come on as an executive producer. Even with my movie, when I was first starting with it, I'm friendly because I've worked with Vim Vendors for over 11 years. And he actually you know, indirectly led me to the money for my movie and he lent his name originally to be an executive producer. We didn't need it in the end, but it was helpful to add another layer to it so that when people read it, they can understand someone else endorsing it. So I think that that helps, definitely, if you can add as much as you can to it. Now you talked about this process when you were working on Angel Heart and then also Wall Street. Is, uh, is your process different with each director as far as how you cast and how you go about um, bringing people in for a project? Um, I don't know if it's different with each director as, if, as, is, as it is with each project. Like some projects are more traditional and they're looking for professional actors and it's a straightforward piece. Whereas now I'm working with Wayne Wang again and he's a director I've worked with many times before and we're doing a little movie that's very experimental and I'm going to need to cast non-professional actors because I need people who are fluent in Mandarin and English and there's just a very small professional group to cull from. So like when we made the Joy Luck Club, people said, oh, where were all those actresses from? Like as though they had never existed. And they had all worked before, almost all the, almost all the leads had, you know, had really good careers but they had never had the rules to showcase them, so people didn't felt they were completely new. And they weren't. We did do open calls for that, but at the, ultimately, you know, we went with the best actors, and there are lots of people in supporting roles who are not necessarily, you know, as professional. But most of the professionals were, were all there, so, so it kind of, it varies. I like to do a lot of research, and I, I'm now even in doing this little movie with Wayne, and I'm doing another independent movie where it's an improvisational movie with a young filmmaker named Maura Stevens. She did a movie that won an IFP Spirit Award last yes. year. Didn't we interview her? We did. We interviewed her. Well, in Maura's movies, 
you know, she wants to do an improvised movie. And I think this is difficult in the sense that to get a well-known professional actor to do an improvised movie with literally a first-time, second-time filmmaker is a lot harder than me calling the same actor to do Wayne Wang's movie. Like when we went did the movie Center of the World, which was with Peter Sarsgaard and Molly um, Parker, sorry. Um, that movie, you know, again, I had no script. Um, well, then Paul Oster wrote something, and we actually went and did something different from that but people were willing to take the leap because here was the director when we cast also I produced a movie with Wayne that I also cast called The Chinese Box and again that was based on a short story that I had originally optioned with Wayne and we needed to and we had Gong Li attached the movie was happening this way Gong Li Hong Kong 1997 so it was all about the changeover from Hong Kong to China and Gong Li was going to be in her first you know English speaking role well, we had to come up with the rest of the movie, and we went and attached Jeremy Irons just based on the filmmaker, Gong Li, 1997, and here's the story idea that we have. And it was based on a short story, which if you see the movie today, you realize the short story is pretty much taken out of the movie, and it was mostly improvised based on something else. So it's always an evolving process. I think for me, early on, like 15 years ago when you were researching a movie, there was no internet. And it was all about connections to the community and trying to break into a community. And for instance, Heaven and Earth, which was Oliver Stone's film about Laylee Hayslip, we cast. We had the luxury of casting the movie for a year, went all over the country looking at the different Vietnamese communities, held open calls in at least four or five cities, and reached out to the community. I had a Vietnamese helper who translated my press releases we I went and met with there's a lot of newspaper and radio stations even then um, who were Vietnamese based in America did interviews with everybody met everybody got them to write stories about it and the idea was and it was highly political because Laylee Hayslip was not somebody that the entire Vietnamese community embraced some really felt that she was against them and that she went back to Vietnam while it's still under communist rule and she now things have loosened up still but there's still there was a lot of there was a lot of people who did not support her and her what she was trying to do and um but we were able to break into the communities and they were an amazing group of people and get them to come forward and tell us their stories and incorporate sort of the reality of what we found with the movie. And the young woman who started the movie was a med student at UC Davis. Her name is Kip T. Lee. She's acted in movies since. We're still really good friends. She's like my favorite discovery in the sense that she's a woman who was a boat person, had horrific experiences coming to this country, supported her family through this movie, didn't end up going to med school, ended up being an actress, and then ended up recently opening the China Moon Cafe in Venice. And she has her own restaurant, which is what Laylee Hayslip, who she fashioned herself after, did as well. And she's still active in her community and still acting and doing everything. But um, she's kind of, in a way, I feel like she acted a role as a young woman. She was 18 or something. And now as an adult woman, has sort of lived something of what her character has gone through in a different way. And, um, and it's kind of an amazing inspiration. So we were able to do that for Evita, the movie Evita, that all, when Oliver Stone was directing it, because we had had such an amazing experience together doing Heaven and Earth. Not only did it cast Laylee, I mean's role, which was played by Hip, we cast almost the entire cast, except for Joan Chen and... Um, one other main actor, um, Cambodian actor, um, Hang Noor, Dr. Hang Noor. Every other Asian role was cast pretty much with non-professional actors. And, um, and we really, I mean, Oliver did such an amazing job in a lot of ways of finding the most within people. And, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of that cast. I mean, they were an amazing group. It's, it's totally, in some ways, I guess the most inspired cast. But it's hard to see it because the movie gets overshadowed by, you know, Tommy Lee Jones and that start story. But what I was going to say is when he, because of that success, we went to do Evita, and he's like, I want you to find the real thing. You know, go back. Go do that. So I get to go to, again, 
wonderful time. I'm young, have no children, go to South America, cast in Mexico open calls, had open calls in Miami, do open calls in Argentina, try to find all these different actors in South America. We flew over an actress from Argentina here, kept testing her, but then the studio, this is, times are changing. This is almost 19, I guess 1993, 94, and they're like, Oliver, you're not going to probably make this movie with no star. I mean, Heaven and Earth was a big movie that Warner Brothers did support, which would never get made today. There was no stars except for Tommy Lee in that time, and Tommy Lee Jones got cast in that after JFK, and, you know, Oliver was riding high, but this now they're like no you you're gonna make this with a star and originally and michelle pfeiffer was gonna play evita when he was doing it and oliver was gonna film the whole thing live and we did cast we had antonio banderas we cast him he auditioned for it at that time and and then you know we cast some other interesting actors but a lot of it again was going to be this real you know people who were not necessarily professional and people just just a different approach and ultimately, he didn't get to make that movie. And when Alan Parker went to make the movie, because I had worked with Alan Parker, I was maybe going to go... And Madonna came back into it. She had always been around. Um, I didn't end up going back to finish it, because at that point, I had had a baby. But um, it was a very different movie. I mean, his movie was much more... The movie that Alan Parker made was very similar to the play. And the movie that Oliver was making was very different. Mm-hmm. So, but... I don't think in today's world as a casting director you get as much opportunity to do that kind of research because a studio has to be so committed to a movie. Today I was talking to a casting director in San Francisco that I I was going to maybe work with to help me with Wayne Wang's movie that I was telling you about that we're going to do where I'm looking for a Mandarin-speaking actress. And she had done research on um, The Kite Runner. And The Kite Runner... I think the New York Times reported last year they actually filmed it in Mongolia and they had to bring actors from all over the world and you know they looked I, I you know I know they had a European casting director do a majority of it and I don't know if she looked in Afghanistan and just all over other Arab countries and that's an amazing I mean she cast the San Francisco portion of it because a lot happens in the Bay Area as well she said she cast it over a year like on and off and that's something that I think today as casting directors we don't usually have that opportunity. And it's partly because I think the studios aren't committing to those kind of movies as much. That sweeping movie that's going to require that kind of casting. More or less today you've got the sweeping movie that is a franchise like Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, or the Chronicles of Narnia. But the Gandhi or the movies that are, you know, really big historical that have lots of different characters. Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. That's not what we're focusing on today. I was totally jealous of this casting director in in San Francisco. Just like, wow, to dig into the Kabul community of San Jose. That's like candy to me, you know, to find, to really find something. And you just don't get that opportunity as much because they're not making those movies as much. Well, two things. One is, do you do, when the studio gives you, let's say they give you one of these big sweeping movies, do they say use either actress star A, B, or C, or do they just hand you the movie with the stars already slotted in, and then you have to cast the rest, or how does that well, work? Because you mentioned that I am the casting director of independent auteur directors, I'm not getting those big studio movies that give it to you anymore. And when I had those directors who were doing those studio movies, usually like, there might have been a star attached, and then you cast the rest of them. Or you're in consultation on the beginning, like Nixon, for instance. Oliver Stone, you know, consulted with me over three or four people who could play Nixon, and I was involved in it from the get-go, but it kind of depends. I think usually the studio, in my experience, will attach their, you know, bankable Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, you know, who that star is, and then the casting director is usually given the movie. But sometimes if the casting director has kind of relationship with the filmmaker and the filmmaker is that big and has this relationship with the studio then I think it becomes a part and parcel sort of process. So if the studio is going to attach one of their bankable stars, who makes that deal? The studio, usually. And sometimes, you know, there might be a casting consultant on board, but it's really a studio deal. Um, 
that's not um you know there's right now the the market is really different because i think that there's very few you know sort of of the mid-level kind of movies anymore there's the big movies and then there's the little movies and these movies that cost even 20 40 million is considered middle and that's harder to go with because the cost of marketing that movie is three times that so three times that i would say that's probably fair assumption it could be if you're really fully marketing and distributing that movie yes I mean, you should ask somebody else that question because I'm not an expert there, but that's my understanding. It's very, very costly today. And I think that the whole thing is going to change, actually, because I think there's going to be simultaneous releases in terms of DVD and on-demand. Is that like what Soderbergh's experiment with Bubble? Mm -hmm. Was it called Bubble? And I think there's going to be more of that. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that the movie-boring experience today is very different. I think uh, David Denby wrote a really great article about that in The New Yorker. I feel like people spending money going to the movies today maybe in some ways want to bring it back to spend my money and go to a real theater experience like going to the Arclight now you know where you've got your seat and it's reserved and you spent extra money to go there but you're not barraged by thousands of people trying to get a seat and you know it's 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 a and the ads. But then, you know, there's filmmakers. Uh, Quentin Tarantino was quoted in the LA Times last week saying, like, he hates the arc light. There's too many rules. I don't want to be told what seat to sit in or something. The arc light like. is a theater that's uh, nearby on Vine Street here in Los Angeles. And it uh, it's a kind of an upscale theater. Well, it's extremely expensive. And you get a membership card. It's something like $14 to, to, to have a seat there. But you do get... Your parking validated. Somebody introduces the movie. You you have a membership card. Occasionally, you get free popcorn. There's no and, commercials before the movie. And they're very careful about the sound system and the the yeah. quality of the movie, the it's way a, it's presented. So and there there's a bar and restaurant there. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is that it's, you know, you have the availability of wide, you know, these big widescreen TVs and high definition systems today that have come down so drastically in price that you have to understand that middle America would rather be at home often, then go to the multiplex. And I just think in a way it's like, you know, it's the way that airplane travel used to be, you know, you get dressed up to go on a plane. Now it's like, you, you know, you're lucky if you get where you want to go and you're one of the pack on the bus. And, you know, it's just, it's it's a horrendous experience. And I think that going to the movies has changed as well. And maybe in a way if we bring back the glamour, to going out to the movies, maybe people will want the experience. I certainly hope that we have the community experience continued, but I think that things have to change. So everything, you know, if the cost of the movie, you know, the prices go up and all these things factor into what that end result is for the audience. And if they're going to end up then saying, well, you know what, I don't want to pay that. I'm going to get it on Netflix. Well, then we have to deal with that reality that our movies are being made not only for that common experience, they are being made for the home experience because the market has changed. So it's it's so many different layers involved here, but I think that, that the industry has totally changed. And even in the way that I'm saying that, you know, somebody spending the money to send me on some search to find an actor, they will today, you know, dial it into the Internet, and that's pretty much, you know, what they want to pay for. Speaking of that, how do you keep up to date on who the really hot actors and actresses are out there? There seem to be so many different venues, and um, there's, there's, uh, you know, you can watch things on YouTube, you can watch things on television, and then there's the movies. There's just a lot of media to consume. How do you handle that? With <laughs> great, yeah, it's hard to keep up to date. I mean, I would say that I still am somebody who, if I lived in New York, I would still be going to the theater all the time, and whereas here I'm much more selective about when I'm going to spend my money and time to go out with. But I think television is somewhat a great venue in terms of keeping up because you can flip through a lot and see a lot. I think you have to read reviews of everything, even if you can't get to the movie or the theater. I, I really believe in, it, in in reading reviews and trusting in that and seeing if somebody looks interesting and then following up on that. And look, I look at the Internet as a research tool every day. And I think that it is an amazing research tool. But keeping up on all the media is difficult. I think YouTube is not so much to keep up with what's the newest talent just because it's too vast an arena. It's more like if somebody sends it to you, you want to. But if I spent my time looking through YouTube, 
I think I'd be wasting <laughs> too much of my time. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's just too much of it out there. Yeah. So I really still am old-fashioned in that I'm depending on good reviewers, and I'm depending on reading industry papers, and I'm depending on, you know, trying to get out to see what's out there as much as possible. If I'm trying to cast, cast a bankable star in my movie, how do I know what star is bankable in, say, Japan or, or other places or even here? Well, there's definitely foreign sales companies that will give you estimates on that, and there's books and ratings and all sorts of things. So it varies because different foreign sales companies will have different different sales estimates on different actors. So depending on who you're working with, that's going to that's gonna factor into it. But generally, you know, the rule of thumb is that they're going to be about a year behind. So our television stars really don't translate into box office overseas. And it takes a while till it catches up. Even though, let's say, you know, ER was a hit in Europe, it didn't make, you know, George Clooney bankable until George Clooney was in a movie. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what's great about American studio or cinema, and particularly in American television, is that they can take that leap more easily and launch somebody new. Whereas a European-based movie, finance movie, is generally not going to put in a star finance a movie with a star that they haven't already seen and heard. Brick, this is a good segue into what seems to be another one of the trends in your career is you work with a lot of very well-respected European directors. Mm-hmm. Um, just recently you've worked with uh, a gentleman that did The, the Dream Life of Angels and an, um, what, a, another movie you just cast called Old Loves. Oh, yeah. Jan Schut, is that Jan So tell us a little bit about the difference, or first of all, how did you get involved with the European independent film community as a casting director? Right. And secondly, what are the differences um, with working with European directors and productions? I guess the first major European film director was, was Wim Wenders, who I am incredibly in love with and indebted to for his vision. And... Unfortunately, I have not worked on any of his really super successful movies. But what I love about Vim is he's an auteur and he'll just keep doing it, do it again. He doesn't hold it all as precious as some people and feel, I'm sure he felt disappointment commercially on several things. But So I got involved with Vim Vendors because of Paul Oster, who's an, you know, a revered American writer who's way more famous in Europe. And Paul um, wrote a very well-known um, collection orig- called the New York Trilogy that brought him to a lot of fame. And and then he's recently just written another novel. And I actually just cast a movie for him in Europe as well. He'd been on the film festival jury in Cannes. He's he's definitely in. He's translated French writers to English, and he's very well known there. And he happened to be friends with the vendors because these are two of the coolest men in the world and they connected and luckily referred them to me about 12 years ago so i started working with him and then and then i think in terms of the other filmmakers they came to me eric came to me because he saw a film that i cast which was a really interesting independent film called keen it starred damian lewis and was directed by lodge kerrigan an independent filmmaker who's american but again probably has had more success in europe i think his sensibility and i think and this relates to my sensibility too my sensibility is definitely not as mainstream American to the detriment of my bank account. It is very European in the sense that um, the issues that I'm interested in and in the people that I'm interested in seeing on screen are not iconic, you know, typical American stars. And I think when you see movies like today, I recently saw The Lives of Others, which won the German, it won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. And you look at a movie like that, these are like all amazing, real people. They're not the way an American, you know, studio makes its movies, where I think there's so much attention in this country still to, to glamour and looks that it's so different than the European sensibility. And um, so Eric, Z- Eric Zonka saw Keen, which was a very dark and disturbing film about a man who's schizophrenic and who, you know, follows this young child and you feel like he's lost his child and then he's trying to sort of um, 
befriend this other child and you're just on the edge of your seat if something awful is going to happen and it it, it doesn't in in some sense but it's very torturesome to watch him go through this experience of having lost a child and then trying to sort of sublimate it with this attention to this other child and Eric called me based on seeing that film he really wanted to and his film was a kidnapping story with a little girl in it um I'm sorry a little boy in it Keen was with the little girl and um it stars Tilda Swinton. And it stars Tilda Swinton. And I had to look for this little boy that she kidnaps. And that story, um, Julia it's called, is very much, I think, in homage to the movie Gloria. Um, that shares a lot in common with that. And Eric was a very particular filmmaker, and he was able to get his movie financed with Tilda Swinton alone. And um, we were able to actually cast like her male lead without having to look for a movie star which was amazing because they believed in the filmmaker um and in the the story and Tilda Swinton and that was just all we needed everything else you could just do what made sense for Eric and what he wanted artistically well that's a big difference then that is a big difference and it happens in American films sometimes like with what happened with Keen which was uh, directed by Lodge Kerrigan Lodge um was a, a very well-respected filmmaker, but has done very independent films. And Steve Soderbergh um, was his champion. And Steve Soderbergh produced the movie and said, "Okay, try and get some movie stars." We tried, didn't work out. I'll make your movie, and we were able to make the movie with whoever Lodge wanted. So it was made in that same format because Steve Soderbergh was behind it. It was only a million dollars. He basically was able to finance that movie. So I think it has to do with a mixture of money. And um, doing a movie sort of that's true to the auteur. Um, I think Wayne Wang sometimes, and what Wayne's trying to get back to is to do those movies more where he is the auteur and where he holds the vision and not compromised by a studio. I think that's what he'd like to go back to. Um, It all, you know, George Hickenlooper, who I know you interviewed a while ago, I've worked with, with George on several movies. I didn't do his latest movie, Factory Girl, but... I feel like George is a filmmaker who is he he's someone who wants to do that. He wants to be the auteur but has to play within the system. So, you know, a movie that I cast for George was called The Man from Elysian Fields. And we had a lovely cast in the movie and we actually got to cast Mick Jagger in this fantastic part. And George was instrumental in getting Mick to agree, and George is very charming. And he, I feel like with some of the cast of that movie, we were compelled to cast certain names that were approvable for who was financing it. And if George was making that movie just based on George as a European film, I think we would have cast it slightly differently, not completely, but I feel like there were definite limitations. And there was... um, at the time that we cast that movie, I was followed by a journalist for Los Angeles Magazine who sort of chronicled the process of casting that movie. And I did that mostly because I wanted people to see what was it like behind the curtain, why I couldn't cast sometimes my favorite character actors. Because there was a financial contingency, even though it was a small movie. It still had this, like you had to have more than one star. You had to have five stars or whatever it is. So that happens more and more. And I think in the European system, sometimes they're more director-driven and they trust their auteurs and allow them to just make the movie. Not to say that, like, Vim Vendors, when we did Don't Come Knocking, which is a movie that Sam Shepard wrote, and Sam stars in it, and Jessica Lange is in it, and Tim Roth is in it, as well as Sarah Polly and Gabriel Mann and Faroujah Balk. We had pressure on us to cast certain roles with names absolutely because it was a fairly expensive movie it was a road movie and a lot of it was based on foreign sales now Vim had his say over certain roles but some roles he definitely had to consider the financial aspect which was a compromise in some sense for him sometimes because he might have just done it differently but it's the reality of once you hit I think after three million dollars even a a well-known director you start to have to listen to other people. So I think Don't Come Knocking cost a fair, you know, it was pretty expensive for an independent film. It still wasn't anywhere near a studio movie, but it still was costly. Um, 
Speaking of money, can you tell our audience a little bit about what the procedure is to hire a casting director? Let's say that I am making a movie and I have my financing in place. Let's say it's a SAG ultra low budget or low budget contract. Do you work on a percentage of the budget like the... the uh... Often we work on the percentage of the budget. It's also changed now that the casting directors are now part of the Teamsters. Oh, so you guys are now unionized. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a big deal. And when, so, when did that happen? Last spring. So um, that's a big difference for us right now because often these little independent movies, they're not going to be union. So we're forced with making this decision of, you know, we're allowed to work on non-union movies, but we're not going to get our benefits. And this is the first time that we've had health benefits. So sometimes I'll end up because I, I tend to have this problem of thinking of myself a little bit more as a producer, so I understand how hard it is financially, so I'll sometimes compromise too much and say, okay, well, I'll take less money, but you need to sign my union contract and get me my hours. Mm. So what's the union rate? Is it a weekly, an hourly? It's not a, a rate. There's no rate, but all it is is that the producers have to pay. It's about, um, they have to pay a few hundred dollars or two hundred dollars extra a week towards your benefits. I know with SAG, uh, it's like thir 13, or WGA, it's like 13.5% of the salary or something like that? Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's there is a certain amount. They made it so that, and the union did an amazing job, I think, in protecting the casting directors and, and also allowing producers to hire casting directors who are union because it's not that much more expensive, they can afford it, and they don't necessarily have to be IA in every other department. That's what I was going to yeah. ask you, because if... You, you don't, but I, I try to get all the movies that I work on that are shooting, you know, in IA areas or here. I mean, it's harder when if you're, I'm doing a consulting on a movie that's going in Italy. Well, I don't know what it, that's going to be. That's much more... I look at those as consultations. I'm not casting it. I'm helping it put, being put together. If I'm actually physically casting a movie that's going, then I want to try and get my union contract. And one thing if I'm consulting on a movie. So what? every casting director has a different amount of comfort level. A lot of casting directors don't want to work at all on something that's on speculati speculative nature, which is what you're saying. Because even though most people don't have all their money together, when they come to you as a casting director, if they're an independent filmmaker, very few do, I would say. So, you know, I have my own formulas of what percentage of the budget I think my value is to it. What is that? I can't say because it varies piece by piece and depends on who I'm working with. So I have a sliding scale that I would say is, is, is harder to say. But, you know, I mean, casting directors' fees, I will tell you this, have not gone up with industry standards or the business. And I think that, you know, we were making by and large, you know, more money, I would say, 10 years ago in some ways, mostly because they were movie budgets actually were bigger on the sort of smaller level stories than they are today. The same movie like Joyla Club or Smoke, a beautiful movie. I mean, Smoke was made for, I think, $10 million. Today, Smoke would be made for two to three if we were lucky. So therefore, everyone's salaries come down, which is when you talk to actors too. How many actors are working at scale? And they should have be above scale but they're working at scale because those movies are just at a different level today they're not making it the same way that they were I think in the early 90s what do you think about a profit participation sort of um, arrangement with casting directors is that something you've ever done or yes. what I, I always try to do that and I think that if the movie makes money then you should make money and you know, be part of its success, but we all know those stories of how to actually get that success and how it actually translates realistically. I mean, I have a few movies that I still get a check on, but, you know, few and far between. But now that you're unionized, will you get residuals? No, we don't get residuals. It's basically for health benefits. I want to know, we have to wrap this up pretty soon, but my question is, if someone is going into the casting director business, they want to be a casting director, how do they approach it? Do they become a casting assistant first? How should they prepare? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a different ways today because there's many more casting directors than where they were, but I think that the preparation in my ideal is, is to be a casting assistant, and I also think being 
having some exposure, not everybody needs to be an actor, but I think you need to understand the actor's perspective. So I think all casting directors should take some kind of acting class because I think that they really need to be the champion of the actor. That's our job, you know, sort of to, to fulfill the vision of the director and be the champion of the actor. And so I think it's really important... It kills me now that there's... I mean, everybody can have an opinion. Everybody can have, oh, I like him, I like her. It's like liking colors. But I think if you don't have the understanding behind what went into it, you're just way, you know, behind the eight ball. So I would like to see people, you know, understand, you know, I think to me still I'm, I'm, you know, feel like the theater was a a great background to have. Um, I did, I worked in the theater for a while and I... You know, I was a history and political science major, but I also took acting classes, and I, I think all of that really helps inform it. And I think you do need to, you know, work with a casting director whose taste you admire. Look at casting directors' resumes. Don't just send it blindly out. Why do you think you need to work with so-and-so? Because I think that that makes for the best kind of combination and learning experience, and then you can always go on from there and work for someone else. But nowadays I think that, you know, there's books out there and how to become this and how to become that. But it is the kind of, it's not it's not a job, it is an on-the-experience kind of job. It's not a job that you study about. But I think that your tools are to understand the director's vision and to understand the actors first and foremost. Because you need to know how to direct actors in an audition. And I think you get that more from an acting class than, you know, a directing class, so to speak. Because that focuses more on a visual point of view and we're really more about performance so do you think um being a casting director is a good road towards being a producer well i always thought so i mean i I think i was just thought it was a neat idea as a job i read an article about juliet taylor when i was in college in esquire magazine and i thought wow woody allen's movies are really cool and she gets all these great people in them and it looked like a job that you didn't need to know how to type, which I didn't know how to type. <laughs> I was very good at filing, and I had a great memory of people. So it, that's come from there. And then in terms of producing, that sort of came to me more later because I realized the con- combination. And, you know, I think that knowing you have to have all, you have to have different different ends of it, it, it to, to fit into this business. It is, like, I'd love to have the job of just casting and not have to worry about also producing because producing means bringing the money, the material, and the talent. And I love to just to be able to focus on the casting part of it. But um, I think as I started doing it more and more and I started to see that it was a good inroad into producing because ultimately the talent is what drove many of these projects forward, talent and the relationship with the director. Uh, Fred Roos is an example who started as a casting director for Francis Ford Coppola and you know went on to produce many of his films and it's been done by other casting directors as well Bonnie uh, Timberman's doing it yeah yeah Bonnie Lou, Lou DiGiamo yeah yeah I mean I think like my producing with directors sort of happened out of naturally out of relationships with some of the directors that I worked with and with Bonnie it was some of that too I think and then developing her own material so it's kind of a mixture of things. Well, that's great. Thanks, Heidi, for uh, joining us or having us join you here in your office. It's been really nice and very informative as well. Yeah. Um, film Bites. We always, at the end of the show, we do this thing called Film Bites, which is uh, just little pieces of information we can give people out there that um, will help them uh, make their film or a step along the way that will help them make their film. Or in this case, what would be nice would be a pragmatic tip for an actor in terms of auditioning for a casting director. That would be a good film bite if you can think of something. Mm-hmm. Do you have one? Let's, I think Heidi's got one. Let's okay. <laughs> I think for an actor, I would say when you come in for an audition is think of the audition as part of your everyday job. It's not a, you know, each audition in and of itself is not a be-all it's part of your job every day so to be relaxed about it and just view it as like oh this is what I do today rather than if I don't get this it's you know the end of my career (laughs) (laughs) that's how you feel though it just happens I know it just but it's 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 sort of a mind training exercise for you to go in and enjoy the process of auditioning because that's part of your work as an actor 
And if you're not enjoying it and you're bringing in too much baggage into the room, it doesn't work for anybody. So it's, it's got to be something that you got to love to do as well. And you see people, I get calls from actors, friends who've been in the business for a really long time saying, oh, you're not going to believe who is in the room waiting for an audition with me. Because unfortunately, I think as much as this is a difference between going back to European filmmakers, they don't always require as many auditions. Or sometimes they require, but it's a different situation. There's a more like... It's a, in London, I would think, like, people working with directors, they just sort of talk to the actor. And they don't require the audition because here's my body of work. Why should I have to audition every time? But I think that, unfortunately, because of the advent of quick video and sharing it and everything, I think everybody wants to see it. Everybody needs to know that it can be done. And so it, it brings it, unfortunately, to a place where very few people just get offers all the time. Lots of very accomplished actors who shouldn't have to be auditioning are going in and auditioning. And that's why I say if you don't like that, then you shouldn't be an actor today because it's got to be part of the process. You'll get to the place where you get offered things, but if you don't like the process of auditioning, it's much harder to get to that place. So enjoy it. That's a great one. I'm going to do it from now on. I didn't even have a sound. I just point. thought of that. I my first agent in Hollywood, he said to me, his one of his successful clients was Scott Bakula and he said, you know, Scott Bakula always looks like he's going someplace else when he comes in to see you. And I never yeah, understood he it. To no. Carry a tennis no, no, he said around. he always looks like he's going to play tennis. But <laughs> and I and when I I, always, I took things kind of literally and I was like, well, should I be going to play tennis all the time? <laughs> um, but I understand what he was talking about at the time. Yeah, he's like, he doesn't have as much vested in it. Yeah, it feels like, like this is casual. The end of the line. Exactly. This is just when like you feel one the stop. End of the line. It makes you feel so nervous about it. And I remember with actors coming in for Oliver Stone, and maybe you had this experience, Kamala. Oliver's kind of nervous meeting a lot of people, partly because he's so famous, you know, he's worried, like, what are they going to think of me, and blah, blah, blah. So he's often just, like, looking down and doing something else, and it's not that he's really ignoring it, but it's it's a very disconcerting feeling. And it, it's like, so the people who come in and don't feel put off by that and don't personalize it are the ones who are okay with it. It could do well. Because you have to remember when you're walking into that room, you're dealing with their craziness as well as your own craziness. <laughs> And it can get really compromising. So I think it's always like good to, like you said, you know, have somewhere else to go after. Yeah. You know, it's a good piece of advice. All right. Well, I have to go now. I've got to be somewhere. <laughs> so thanks again for joining us, and we'll uh, see you all next week. Thank you.